How are y'all doing today? Good. Uh, let's uh, turn in our Bibles, if you want to, to Isaiah chapter 9, where we're going to pick up with uh, thoughts that we've had here for the past couple of weeks, looking at the Advent and approaching Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And we've taken a break from our study through the book of Exodus to kind of focus in on this Advent season. And we're using this passage in Isaiah to focus on the actual words, the names that are given to this coming Messiah. So Isaiah is writing in a day and a time where, um, you know, basically the Assyrians are overcoming the northern kingdom, Israel, and a lot of the Israelites are beginning to wonder, what, is, what does this mean for our future, and, and where is God in all of this, and how could this be a part of his plan? And they're re- realizing the consequences to their rebellion, their sin, um, their idolatry, and Isaiah's writing in that time, and a lot, if you go read Isaiah, you know that he's already spoken to them very much about the consequences of their sins and what's going to happen, and he warned them, and they didn't listen, and now at this point, he's writing um, about what's going to happen, like God's bigger plan for the future, and so we have these messianic passages in the Old Testament. We have them all the way through from beginning to end in the Torah and the historical writings and the wisdom literature and even in the prophetical sections of, of Old Testament. Every one of them contains these messianic passages that point to who the Messiah is going to be and specifically what you should be looking for. And so we spent the past couple of weeks looking at the first two and now we're on our third one wonderful counselor, how he would be uh, the one who was our advocate, one who was full of wisdom, one who was full of guidance. Uh, We talked about the um, mighty God and how mighty God is this picture of this strong God who is like the one who delivered them from Egypt and how strong he was and how mighty he was and the deliverance that he gave to his people. And now we come to the one that is everlasting father. Now, if you read it in the context of Isaiah 9, it's, um, it's a little bit contradictory because it starts off saying to us a son is born, or to us a, a child is born, to us a son is given, and then all of a sudden his name is going to be everlasting father. So how can he be both son and father? And I do believe that's speaking to the dual nature of Christ. He is the son of God, but he's God himself. Jesus came And he showed us in human form what it's like to have a right relationship with the Father. But at the same time, Jesus is God. So he's showing us how to have a right relationship with him. So there's this demonstration both in the coming and the incarnation of Christ and also in the larger truth of how we relate to God. So that's how he can be both a son that is given and the everlasting Father. Okay, One and the same. But I want to focus on this idea of everlasting father. Because when you start talking about the idea of father, you never know how people are going to receive that. Because for some of us, it may be really hard to understand God as father because maybe in our our own life and our own experiences, um, maybe we didn't have a great example as a father. Um, I did. I had a great example as a father. He was very strong and authoritative when I was young. And as I've gotten older, he's become very 
compassionate and emotional and caring. And so, I mean, just for every stage of life, it seems like even though he wasn't perfect, he was very appropriate. And he was always there. He was always present. For some of us, I know some of your stories that I've heard. And you have a father that, that wasn't present. Maybe he wasn't present because he was working all the time and he was just gone. Maybe he wasn't present because of divorce. And, and so he was gone most of the time. Maybe he was present because he just wasn't a good father and he abandoned his family. I don't, I don't know what the case may be. And it could be not just a physical absence, but it might have been an emotional absence or a spiritual absence. Maybe he was there physically, but emotionally or, or spiritually, he was somewhere else. And you grew up with that. And so whenever God, people talk to you about God as your heavenly father, sometimes we have to overcome what that word father carries for us to understand that word in a different light. And so if you think about it, scripture is kind of pushing us towards understanding God as something other than an earthly father. There are many times where Jesus was teaching and he was saying, even earthly fathers can do this, how much more would your heavenly father do this? Earthly fathers can do this and think in this way, your heavenly father. So he's even beginning to differentiate between our understanding of our earthly father and how we are to understand our heavenly father. So Jesus wants us to understand what it means to be in relationship with the father. It's through Jesus that we actually become the children of God. We become adopted into the family of God. And through Jesus, it's how we become no, uh, we come to the perspective of knowing God as Father or knowing what it means to have a heavenly Father. So as we see Jesus live his life, the thing that we see is he gets his power, his wisdom, his direction from his relationship with God. And so we understand through his example that we should do the same thing. Once we've been saved and we've been redeemed and adopted into the family of God and he is our father, then we follow the example of Jesus. We find our wisdom from our relationship with God. We find our direction from our relationship with God. Not outside of, not something you go to just when you need it or you can't figure it out yourself. We don't see that in Jesus' example. We see him constantly going to the Father, constantly looking for direction, wisdom, power. Every time he goes to perform a miracle, he will pray or he will acknowledge some aspect of his relationship with God or that God, the Father, is the one who wants to grant whatever miracle it may be. So again, Jesus kind of redefines what it means to relate to God as, Mo, uh, as God as Father. Now, when we begin to think about some of the aspects of um, the names that we have in Isaiah. For instance, when we come to this passage and we have this idea of him, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. If you remember a couple of weeks back when I was here, I, I told you the Jews had this understanding of what the Messiah was going to be like when he came. And part of it was related to this passage. Like when you have wonderful counselor, he was going to have the wisdom of Solomon. When you have mighty God, he was going to have the charisma of David. When it comes to everlasting father, he was going to have the righteousness of Moses. Now, righteousness and everlasting father, we're trying to understand what, what does that mean. Well, it means two things in relationship to Moses. Number one, if you think about it, Moses had a relationship with God that none of the rest of them did. 
I mean, God spoke directly to Moses, called Moses. There was even this place called the Tent of Meeting before the tabernacle that Moses would go into and would meet with God. God spoke directly to Moses, used Moses in this powerful way. So Moses was kind of like a, a prototype, if you will, of the Messiah that is to come. In other words, when you look at Moses, you get an idea of what the Messiah is going to be, although he's going to be much, much better because Moses is a flawed human being and he's not perfect. That's why the writer of Hebrews, whenever he's talking to those who are thinking about leaving the faith and thinking about going back to Judaism, he's presenting Jesus as better than the angels, better than Abraham. And one of the sections of his writings, he says, he's better than Moses. And he is. He has a greater relationship with God. He never doubted God. God didn't have to call him out. He was sent with that purpose. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of this idea of the righteousness of Moses or this idea of the everlasting father. Because when you think of Moses, you don't think of him just as having this very unique relationship with God. You also think about him as having this fatherly attitude towards the children of Israel. I mean, you see him nurturing them, taking care of them. He is the one who goes between them and God, saying, God, this is what they need. And God provides bread miraculously, water miraculously. He's the one that gives them the law, tells them how to approach God, how to get along with each other. So there very much is this fatherly context to Moses, and not grandfatherly, fatherly. You know, we all know, especially in my situation, the difference in a grandfather and a father. A father is, son, I'm going to beat you for this, and the grandfather is, oh, don't beat him. You know, and grandfathers are all just really nice and really, they're gracious, and they just don't think their kids ever do anything wrong, whereas the father is the disciplinarian. We see in Moses, he's a disciplinarian. I mean, he very much is so. He's warning them. He's telling them, these are the consequences if you go against. But at the same time, whenever God's anger and wrath is boiling over, and rightfully so because of their rebellion, you see Moses going before God, pleading on the name of God and promises of God for the people. I mean, he really is this great perspective of a father of the people. And so when we come to everlasting father, it really is this great idea to think about the connection of how the Jews were thinking the Messiah would be. He would be something like Moses, the righteousness of Moses, that he would have this, this affinity for the law of God, and he would be both gracious and demanding as this everlasting father. So I want to use the first chapter of Ephesians to highlight the truth of the Messiah being an everlasting father. But here's the deal. Because of the fall, because of our sin, none of us ever come into the world with a right relationship with God. Matter of fact, we could go over scripture after scripture that points to the fact that none of us are righteous. No, not one. The wages of sin is death. And that the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve, have been passed on to every generation beyond that. And maybe in some instances even multiplied numerically our, our distance from God, our ability or our even willingness to sin and to be in rebellion. And so sin is something that we are 
born with. We don't have to give our children sinning lessons. You don't have to ask little Johnny to come up and, all right, we're going to teach you how to lie today. We're going to teach you how to steal. We're going to teach you how to be uh, selfish. You don't ever have to teach your kids those things, ever. Matter of fact, you have to teach them the other things, not to be selfish, not to lie, not to hit their brother or their sister, right? So why is that? Because we're all born not with a righteous nature, but an unrighteous nature, and that has to be corrected over time. So all of us come into this world with a sinful nature, and all of us come into this world without a relationship with God, at least not a good relationship with God in right standing. Obviously, God is the father of all creation. He is creator. But I want you to understand that there is a difference of understanding God as everlasting father and God as creator. There's a difference in our a relationship with God under those two banners. So the Bible says that apart from Christ, we are alienated from God. Not children of God, that we are alienated. We're kind of like that prodigal son who has run away. In fact, the Bible insists, Paul talks about this, that we are not only far away from God, but Paul says that we are literally children of wrath. Think about that for a moment. We are the children of wrath. So if wrath could have children, that's who we are. All right? That's not a really good outlook on life, is it? Think about how Paul puts it uh, when he begins to talk about what happens when we become children of wrath and that changes to becoming children of God. What, what has to happen for that nature to change, for that position to change? Well, Paul talks about it, and he talks about it in relationship to who Jesus is. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And think about that for a moment. So Paul's talking about what we used to be in relationship, children of wrath, okay? This is who we are, sons of disobedience. Do you see that familial language that Paul is using there? We are the offspring of. This is what we are connected to. This is the family that we are in. Look how it continues in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in other words, we were all in this situation at one time. We were all children of wrath. We were all separated from God. So God as Father, Paul says, does not mean the Father of all but only the father of some, only the father of a few. Why? Because only a few will move from darkness to life. Only a few will come out of disobedience and come into a right relationship with God. Just because Jesus died on the cross and just because God is merciful and gracious does not mean all of humanity will experience salvation. And Paul is differentiating that. He's saying, yes, we, we, we are sons, but we are sons of disobedience. That's not, sons of God is not our natural standing before the Father. We are distant. We are far away. We don't know God with that kind of intimacy. 
Um, it was probably last week or maybe, maybe the week before. It's pretty recent. My daughter came out to me, and if you know my daughter, she's kind of, she's got a very interesting personality, very interesting character. And she came out to me and she says, so Jack, what are we doing today? And I looked at her and I said, don't you ever call me Jack. I said, I am your dad. You can call me daddy, you can call me father, you can call me dad, don't call me Jack. And I said, in fact, you don't want to know me as Jack. You want to know me as father, okay? And, and I kind of tried to explain to her that all of you know me as Jack, okay? It's a special opportunity that she has to know me as father. Not that I'm the greatest father in the world, but the difference is I don't pay for any of your education. None of y'all. I don't do it. I don't feed you. I don't make sure you get where you're going during the day. I don't clean up after you. I don't buy your clothes. I don't go to work to benefit. Well, I guess kind of I do benefit you in my work, but not in a way of the paycheck part of it, right? So I don't, I don't go to work and earn a paycheck to benefit any of you. It's for her. And, and you don't want to know me as Jack because if you know me as Jack, it becomes very distant. Not that I won't be your friend, not that I won't like you, not that I may not do some things for you, but it radically changes our relationship. Because I am father, that is a privilege that you have and that I have to know you as my daughter and for you to know me as a father. And there are all of these benefits that come to you from knowing me as father, not knowing me as Jack. Do y'all see what I'm talking about there? And that's really, I think, is the heart of what Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying we were all distanced. We knew who God was. We may have even called him God. But Jesus changes that relationship to we don't call him God anymore. Paul even says now we approach him because of Jesus and we call him Abba, which means father or daddy. That, that's a different relationship. That is this connection that we don't have when we think of God as this legalistic deity who is overseeing all of humanity and can only be approached in certain ways or forms or fashions. And yes, there is a very specific way that we have to be a, approaching God, but it's very simple to understand. It's through Jesus. And once we approach God through Jesus, in other words, through the salvation knowledge and accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior and coming up under his authority and being washed by his sacrifice and, and his giving of his body and his blood, then we change our relationship to God. He is no longer this distant creator of everything. He is our Father. He's not the one that, man, I hope I'm the beneficiary of maybe his goodness that he gives to creation. He becomes the one who says, come and ask me anything that you want, and I'll give it to you. That's what Jesus said when he was teaching on the mountainside. Now, obviously, we know that doesn't mean the evil desires of our heart or the selfish desires of our heart. It's talking about when we understand him we begin to take on the heart of God and we begin to want the things that God wants. And God says, when you come into that right relationship and you know me and you begin to understand the things that are a part of my economy, you will ask anything that you want and I'll give it to you in my name. There's benefits from knowing God as Father. Our relationship with God, again, is only made possible through the Son, through Jesus. He demonstrates to us in his life and his ministry what it's like to have God as Father. He's the one who makes it possible to have God as Father. 
And, and we've talked about this before, but Jesus has this very, very unique relationship with God. So much so that if you really pay attention throughout the Gospels, you will hear Jesus say things like this. My Father. My Father. My Father. He never says, Our Father. He says, you know, I could ask our Father anything I want, and he would deliver. No, he says, I'll ask my Father. I'll ask my Father to give to you these things. I'll ask my Father. My Father has sent me. And that speaks to this very unique relationship. What's interesting is when they said, how do we pray? Jesus says, pray in this way. And he's telling them, this is how all of you should pray. And how does he start it? Our Father who is in heaven. Okay? So Jesus demonstrates even in his language that he has this very unique relationship with God. Not that we are not able to have a relationship with God, but that his is very unique, very intimate to the point that he understands the Father, he hears the Father, and he is obedient perfectly to the Father. Paul often says, whenever he's writing a letter, he'll use this phrase, God our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Now, the reason Paul says that is because there's this direct relationship to us knowing the Father, to us knowing the Son. Knowing Christ is how we know the Father. Paul says that. So I want to go back to my passage here that I'm using today. This is Ephesians chapter 1, okay? Go back to chapter 1, and I want to really show you what we have here in this first chapter of Ephesians. And this will be a little bit of bait throw out there to you because our Sunday night Bible study after the first of the year, we're going to be going through the book of Ephesians verse by verse on Sunday nights. So if you have kids that are teenagers, this is a great opportunity for you because you can bring them, they can go to youth on Sunday nights, and you can go to the most amazing Bible study with the most amazing teacher at the most amazing time of the day on the most amazing day of the week, okay? So we call it the amazing Bible study. Anyway, um, that aside, of course, I'm joking. But uh, we are going to start doing that because Ephesians is just replete with all of these treasures of understanding this relationship with God. And I just really want to focus on the first chapter this morning and understanding something that is pivotal for us relating to God as Father. Now, let me just set it up by saying, Paul, when he writes first Ephesians chapter 1, he is really using, I don't know if Paul's writing out of energy and passion or if he's doing this intentionally, but what we do find is from verse 3 all the way to verse 15, in the Greek is one sentence, okay? 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, one sentence. Now that's terrible grammar, okay? Any of y'all that are English teachers out there, you know Terrible grammar. That is the worst of run-on sentences. But I think Paul's making a point, either writing in the energy and passion of what he's trying to relate to his readers, or he is doing this intentionally to say that if you talk about the benefits that we have through Christ, that it's an unending sentence. You never have a period because there are just these benefits that just keep coming at you. And so in that, you will hear this common theme in that first 
section of chapter 1 that's in him. We have this, and in him, in him, in him, in him. You'll see it so many times in those verses, in him. And he's talking about Christ. In him, every spiritual blessing is ours. In him, we have this relationship with the Father. In him, we've been forgiven of our sins. In him, our position before God has been changed. In him, in him, in him. Everything that is ours because of our relationship with God. And you can really break down that first section as well into verses like 3 through 6 and then 7 through 12 and then 13 and 14 kind of stand off and 15 kind of stand off by themselves. And there's three sections there and I want to point that out as we walk through that. So if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 because that's where we're going to be for most of the rest of the time that we have. And we're not going to spend time going through it obviously verse by verse and, and getting into the details of it. I'm looking at the overarching umbrella idea of God as our everlasting father. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Do you see that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So bless God, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what makes it possible, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for, what's the next word? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, how many of y'all have the NIV translation? All right. I just want to tell you, the NIV is a, is a good translation except on this verse right here. Because, and if they've still done this, I think it used to be this way, I'm, I'm assuming it still is. If you look at it, they probably translate it, he, destined, he predestined us for adoption to himself as children through Jesus Christ. Um, and it may be the newer version of the NIV that has that. But they translated it to, for it to be a little bit more inclusive because they were like, well, sons, that kind of leaves women out. But if you miss that, you miss the truth. That Paul is saying. Paul is already including women in this, but what he's saying is even you women will be adopted as sons. Why is that important? Because in the day and age that Paul wrote in, only sons get an inheritance. The women didn't. The women would have gotten the inheritance through whatever husband they married, and he would have gotten an inheritance through his family. But women did not get an inheritance from their father. Only the sons did. But what Paul is saying is all of you, men and women, will receive through Jesus Christ an inheritance as if you were sons of the father. Think about that for a moment. That's powerful, isn't it? Look how it continues. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, we only relate to God as father through adoption. We have to be brought in through a legal process. Adoption into God's family is what allows us to have the beneficiaries of what God has, or in other words, the inheritance, or what is his becomes ours. It's through Jesus Christ that all that is made possible. Just like it says in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, a lot of this has to be understood from the culture and the context that Paul's talking from, because he's talking to them, and he's talking to the church 
in Ephesus, which is probably a mostly Gentile church. If not, it is a very heavily influenced by Roman culture Jewish church. So in other words, the Jews that he's talking to in Ephesus are people who have been inundated with Roman culture. They are very distant from Jerusalem and Judea. They are not accustomed to all of those things. Matter of fact, it's probably hard for them to find a synagogue to go to to learn these things. It's hard to find a good rabbi who has, has learned under maybe another noted rabbi who's in this area. So they're there to defend for themselves and over time they've been overcome by that Roman culture. So Paul begins to to talk to them from this perspective of the Roman culture. Now, in Rome, when he's talking about adoption, that's exactly what they would think. He's thinking of this Roman kind of adoption. So to understand everything that Paul's talking about here and how we relate to God as Father, we have to understand this concept of Roman adoption. Now, adoption, from the Roman perspective, is the legal device, and we find this actually in very many legal systems, by which a person... Um, leaves his own family and enters into the family of another. So we got that right. That's hard to understand, but that's what we're talking about adoption. You leave the authority and connection from one family and you enter into the authority and connection with another family. Adoption was one of the few ways that a slave could actually come into what was known in Rome as the patria potestas, which is the family of the father or the power of the father. Okay? So in other words, he leaves one family and comes under the power of another father. So the slave in that day and time, when we talk about slaves or servants, not like what we understand from our culture, that was like a lot of people who came in or they may have been a part of a Roman conquest, but the Romans would say, hey, you work for a certain amount of time and, and you can have rights and legal standings in Rome. But one of the faster ways to get rights and legal standing was to be adopted by a Roman family who's already in right standing. Now, here's how it would work a lot of times. A lot of these people were adopted as adults which is foreign to us. Now, how many of y'all have ever adopted a 22-year-old or a 25-year-old, okay? Usually, that doesn't really happen unless it's a friend of one of your kids that you have off in college and you ended up paying for them and feeding them and housing them over a long period of time. Maybe you can relate to it a little bit. But the reason is because many of these families would grow older and older and they didn't have any children. And so they didn't have anybody to leave everything that they had to. So what they would do is they would take this servant who had been working for them, maybe in their family for a long time, and they would adopt this adult to be their son. Now, what they would do, the, the, the transaction was, for them, was the son, the, the servant becomes a son. And so he becomes the inheritor of everything that they have. But the, also the benefit that they have is they have someone to take care of them in their older age. In other words, someone to watch after them and maybe help them with medical care or whatever it may be. And so they have that connection. So that person serves that role as a son. That's why they would adopt older kids in this idea of Roman adoption. Now, it also included younger kids, but sometimes would include older kids because of that. Now, this process, this Roman adoption process is called adrogation, okay? Adrogation. Now, the reason that is, it comes from the Latin word, which means to ask, okay? The Latin word is rogator. Rogator means to ask. Now, the reason it's called asking is because the adopting father 
was going to adopt this child to be his lawful son. And so the adopting father is asked in a court of law, do you intend to take this person and make them your lawful son? And the father would respond in the affirmative. And then the court would turn to the person and say, do you accept this person to be your lawful father? Do you, in other words, come under the power of this father leaving behind everything? And if he affirmed yes, then the, in the Roman court, the judge would ask the entire group of people that have gathered there, assuming people who are connected to this case in one form or another, do you all agree that this should be so? And they would answer in the affirmative. And then the judgment would be, this person has now passed from this family to this family. Whatever connection and whatever benefit and whatever inheritance he had from this family is now longer null and void. And now his inheritance and his connection is to this family. He's left the power of this family and now he has come under the power of this family. And that was a process, it was an everyday process in Roman government of the process of aggregation or adoption. Now there was a guy who wrote during this time period. His name was uh, Justinian. And Justinian wrote about this process, and he said this process included the following legal consequences. And I want to just read this to you. It's kind of like lawful language, but if you hear it, you're going to see where I'm going with this. Number one, the adragatus, okay, the adopting father, and children in his power, if any, passed into the power of the adopting party. Okay, so one father and his children passed into the other family. Number two, the property of the adopting father of whatever kind and debts due to him passed to the adopted child by a kind of universal succession. Okay. And then the third thing, any debts due by the child and the personal servitudes of the child were paid and extinguished as a consequence of the extinction of his old persona resulting from the adoption. Again, this is legal language, not from the Bible, not from a preacher, not from anything like that. This is from history. Now, do you see the, what they're saying there? Okay, here it is. This person leaves any power that this father had over him, and he comes under the power of this family and under the power of this father right here. Okay? And as he comes into this power, he is afforded the right standing in this as if he were a permanent son, as if this was his own son that he bore flesh and blood. Okay? Not only that, before he can move from this family to this family, if there's any debts that were owed, those debts have to be extinguished by the adopting father before this child can move from this family to the other. And that even means debts of servitude. So in other words, if this child is a young child who comes from a foreign nation that's been overcome by the Roman government, and he still has years of servitude before he's made full standing citizen, then that father has to pay a price to pay off those years that he still has to serve to make him a full standing Roman citizen in this family. Do you see this? Okay. Now, when you take all that into consideration, all the debts of the adopted child had to be canceled, and in effect, what's happening here is this child begins a new life, or they would even refer to it in that time as being born again. Now, it's interesting that Rome has an idea of being born again. 
Also, from a Jewish perspective, there's this idea of being born again. Now, the adopted son lost all of his rights to his old family, but he gains all of the rights in this full legitimate standing that he has in the new family. So in the most basic sense, in the most literal way, this child got a new father. Now, as you can see in this whole process of adjugation, a father... This is what's amazing in, in, from the Roman perspective and what makes this so powerful. A father in the Roman world could literally and legitimately and legally disown his flesh and blood son. But in the Roman system, a father could never disown an adopted son. It never became an option. It was a legal standing that could not be changed. Here's why. They thought of it from this perspective. Well, you didn't really have a whole lot of control over how that flesh and blood son turned out. Because he grew up. But this one, you knew what he was before you ever brought him into your family. You already knew what you were getting into. So he has a stronger standing and a greater right in the family than your flesh and blood child does. Think about that for a moment. From the process of the Roman government, they say an adopted child has more rights and a firmer legal standing than an actual flesh and blood biological child. The power and bonds of pater familias could never be broken. Now think of what Paul says in verse 7. The blood of Christ is what makes it possible for us to hear and trust and the hearing and the trusting is what becomes the means of us securing that blessing. The Holy Spirit is the assurance of our inheritance. That's really what he talks about there at the end in verses 13 and 14. So look at this next section. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time looking at it, but I want you to see Paul's thought as it progresses. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. I don't have time to go into that, but that is powerful right there. Not out of his riches and grace, according to. You see? Now, see, if I have millions and millions and millions of dollars, and I do, y'all just don't know about it, but I have all of this money, and I give you $10, I have given you out of my riches, but I have not given to you according to my riches. You see the difference in those two? To give according to my riches would mean there is some kind of percentage that I'm giving to you that matches what I have. So think about what he says there again. According to his riches of his grace. Is God's grace limited in any form or fashion? Is, is it absolutely unending? So let me ask you this. Let's say... Let's say that um, I give you 1%, you know, and I give you 10%, okay, of the riches that are endless. How much do you get? What's 1% of infinity? What's 10% of infinity? 
Yes, it's a lot. It keeps going. 1% of infinity is infinity. 10% of infinity is infinity. Do you see, if he gives according to his riches and glory, that there's no end to what you get. There's no end to this benefit. There is no end to this inheritance. Which he continues on verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, do you remember when Gabriel came to Mary and he was going to announce to her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. You remember that? Well, this is found in Luke chapter 1 verse 28. Listen to what he says. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, what did he mean? Literally, you have conceived And the Lord is with you. He is literally inside of you, Mary. That phrase, I want to focus your attention on, oh, favored one. That word in the Greek is only used in one other place in the entire New Testament. Do you know where it is? Right here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's translated blessed in this one. Same exact word, favored one in this passage in my ESV, blessed. God honored Mary with a special honor, right? And and it's right that we esteem her as special. She was chosen of God. She was very special. He said, you're blessed above all women. There was a standing that Mary has that's very significant. But here's what I want to remind you of. What Paul says is, he bestowed that same honor on you. The same exact honor he gave to Mary, he gives to you. Which is why Paul uses this, this word here. Just as Mary was privileged to bear Christ... So are we by the Spirit of God. And that's why we are highly favored as well. We are accepted because Christ dwells in us. If we could have our eyes open to this truth. I mean, think about this. If we could get our hands around this, how it would change our lives. Now, let me ask you, how much of your time and energy is given to pursuing the acceptance of others? I mean, I, I think that we would say, oh, well, no, maybe when I was in junior high. Mm-mm. No, we do it as adults, don't we? I mean, it affects sometimes the kind of cars that we get, the kind of clothes that we wear, the places that we hang out, the kind of things that we do with our children, or the kind of things we let our children do, or where we send them to school. It may be something, but there's always this subtle thing behind us that maybe some of the things we do, we are doing it because we want to be accepted by others. Now, we would tend to think that this acceptance is something that maybe younger people deal with, but not maybe the older people deal with. But this does apply to those of us who are in you know, a very competitive world. 
It is competitive. Competitive for friendships, competitive in workforce, competitive in so many different ways. We have fears, uh, we have friends and, and, and peers who are constantly, constantly one-upping each other, right? I have this, oh, I have this, we went there, we're going there. Why? Because something about this acceptance. You see, the love and acceptance of this world is always conditional. You may be accepted today, but tomorrow the standards are going to change. You may look cool with the way you dress right now, but, you know, before long, the members-only jacket is not going to be cool anymore. So the fashions are always changing. The standards of our relationships are always changing. You have to fit into the status quo, whatever that may be, for that day. You have to wear the right clothes, the right car, live in the right neighborhood. You have to share the same opinions and sometimes even the same sins to be accepted in a group. Ephesians 1, looks in the last part, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh, man, the Holy Spirit is given to us. So it is the Father who makes it possible and desires it. It is the Son who has secured it, and it is the Holy Spirit who makes it true. You see how Paul's broken that up in this section? First section, verses 1, 2, and 3, it's the Father who makes it happen. It's the Father who desires it. Verses um, 4 all the way down to verse 12, it is the Son who makes it possible through his sacrifice. And then verses 13 and 14, it is the Spirit who makes it so. In other words, he is the guarantee of all of these promises. To know God as your everlasting Father is a privilege beyond description. Paul, I mean, John talks about it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is as it does not know him. Think about that. What an amazing truth. The Christian who lives with this intimate knowledge of the Father learns to live out his faith in light of the knowledge of God as Father. So in other words, everything we learn, we learn as sons of the Father, and the Father loves us. So he disciplines us, he, he blesses us, he's gracious to us, he gives gifts to us. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of, what's the word? Adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba. Father, not God most high, not God creator of all. Those are great titles, but don't you want to call him daddy? A number of years ago, there was these popular series of books that came out. It's called Chicken Soup for the Soul. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all probably even have it on your shelves. I do. I loved, loved reading those stories. There's one that jumped out at me, and I remembered it as I was preparing this sermon. I just want to share it with you. It was one that talked about an earthquake that happened in Armenia in 1989. And the story was this father who would not give up hope in finding his son in the rubble. Because if you remember that at all, or if you've read about it, you know that that earthquake happened 
in the middle of the day, so all of their children were at school. So this father who was out working in the field after this earthquake happened, he runs to where his son was at school, and the whole school had imploded. The building had fallen down. There was nothing but rubble. And so the father was looking frantically, trying to figure out exactly where his son's classroom would be. And, and everything's going around. Firemen are going by, you know, fire trucks, policemen are coming around. And so he runs and he finds this one spot and he begins to just try and pull these heavy pieces of concrete and steel off of this building to try and find where his son might would be. Now, what happens is the story kind of goes back a little bit and it says this father, what kept him going was he made a promise to his son. He said, no matter what, I will always be there for you. And so that was running in the back of his mind as he began to just pull back. He's like, you know what, I got to see if my son is alive or is dead. And what happened is other parents, well-meaning parents, came. They tried to pull him off of the pile of rubble. They said, listen, they're dead. You can't help them. Go home. This is dangerous. To which he said to them, will you please help me? And then it says that the fire chief showed up next, and he tried to pull him off of that debris. And he said, fires are breaking out everywhere. Explosions are happening everywhere. You're in danger. We'll take care of it. Go home. The father turned and looked at him and says, will you help me now? Courageously, he kept on going. No one would help him. And he kept going, kept going, kept going. Wanted to know, is my boy alive or dead? So he dug for eight straight hours, and he found nothing. So he dug for 12 hours, found nothing. For 24 hours, he dug in that pile by himself and found nothing. And then 36 hours, without sleeping, without eating, without drinking, he kept pulling whatever he could push out of the way off of that pile. Then, in the 38th hour, he pulled back this section of rock, and he heard a voice. Armand, is that you? He heard back, Dad? Dad, it is me. I'm down here. Dad, I knew you would come. I told the other kids not to worry. I told them if you were alive, you would save me. And if you saved me, you would save them. There's 20 of us down here. We're all alive. The father would never give up. Why? Because he made a promise to his child that he would be there. That's an earthly father. How much greater are the promises that we have from our everlasting father? Never give up on us. Never leave us nor forsake us. He will be there. Amen? Let's pray. God, to know you as everlasting Father is a powerful, powerful picture of the relationship that has been granted to us through Christ Jesus. In this season, we remember that a son was given to us and that his name would be everlasting Father. We wouldn't know anything of an everlasting Father if you had not come in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, you showed us through the person of Jesus Christ exactly how we are to relate to you as Father. And you secured our position so that we could be adopted into the family. Extinguishing all of our connections and rights and the powers of our worldly Father, the Prince of the power of this world. And you brought us into the power of your family. Not only that, you gave us rights and standing and inheritance 
and you gave us a permanence that we can never be rejected. God, what a powerful picture to understand you as our everlasting Father. Lord, we celebrate more than just decorations and presents giving and trees and all the things that we associate with this time of year. We celebrate something that's far more lasting and much more far-reaching. We celebrate becoming family, being adopted, being brought in, and becoming the children of the Most High. And yet, as we talk to you in our prayers, we don't have to call you by any name of a dignitary. You invite us to call you Abba, Daddy, God. What a privilege that has been afforded us by Jesus Christ. Lord, we celebrate so much that we neglect the rest of the year. Lord, may this truth sit with us and stay with us. And may it change the way we understand who we are and who it is we are to please and live for. And may it bring us a true peace. And we ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus, our Lord.